Good morning, everyone. It is so good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. As I mentioned earlier on, my name is Nat Evans. I'm the lead pastor here at Forest View. And we're going to be, today, we are going to be concluding our series called The Good Life. It's a series that we've been looking at over the last six weeks and just asking questions around what does the good life look like? Every culture, every community, even every family, every person has this picture for what the good life looks like. And for us as a church, we want to wrestle with this question and ask ourselves how much of our picture of the good life is something that we've taken from all those different things that have influenced us and rather to focus our attention on the good life that Jesus calls us to. But before we do that, there's two things I want to do. First off, I uh, want to uh, just give you a little bit of a roadmap for where we're going after this series so that you have an idea what the next couple months look like for us. Uh, and then there's another thing after that, and I'll just get to that. But first, let me just say, uh, so starting next week, we're going to be beginning a series that we're calling Back to the Table. This was actually originally supposed to be our kickoff series in September, but the world has been a bizarre place, as many of you are aware. And so we just thought, let's hold this. We're going to save it for another week. And this is a series that is entirely focused on the communion table what this table means for us as a community, how this shapes us, how this informs us, and how this table sends us out into the world to be a particular and peculiar people for Jesus. And so we're going to be spending four weeks looking at that. And then shortly after that, we are actually going to be beginning our Advent series. I know, just even mentioning that to you, that like Advent, Christmas is on the horizon. Maybe like your stomach just dropped a little bit. I just want to let you know it's okay. We're going to get through this. Uh, but uh, that's where we're going to be starting after that. So that's just where we're going over the next couple weeks or the next couple months. The second thing I simply want to address, as I said, we are concluding our series called The Good Life. Last week, um, I gave a sermon talking about the issue of sex and sexuality. And uh, that's a really important topic for us as a church. We want to make sure that this is something that we as a community are talking about and wrestling about and wrestling with and conversing over. And one of the things that's really important about this series is one is that wanting to make or wanting about specifically that topic is we realize that is a charged topic, that it is a sensitive topic, and we want to make sure that we do it well. Uh, Not just on my part and my presenting of it, but also making sure that we as a community are in a place where we can hear that well and to be in a place where we can reflect on it well. And I simply want to begin by apologizing for last week. Um, as I'm getting some feedback and conversations with people, and I want to simply say I'm sorry. Uh, In large part, I do not feel like I set our community up well to have that conversation. It was kind of thrusted on you. It was very, very quick. Um, And even just how some of the things were approached, it was very casual, and realizing that that's not where we as a community were at for being able to talk about this topic, which is so important and something we just can't do in a way that's sloppy or unthought through. And so I want to apologize for that and simply say this. One, we are going to continue to address the topics of sex and sexuality as a community. The church, I mean that in the broader church, sometimes we are obsessed with sexuality and we make that the only thing that matters about following Jesus, and this is entirely wrong. But sometimes the church actually errs on the other side, which is we don't talk about it. And we as a church, we want to address it. We want to talk about it because it's important and it matters and it's a part of our lives and it's a part of our journey of discipleship. But the thing that's important for us is to make sure that we're ready to have that conversation. And so in future weeks, we are for sure, if we are talking about this topic, we are going to let 
you as a community know. We're going to send out an email beforehand so that you know this topic is coming, so that you know, and there will probably be a disclaimer at the start of the sermon or at the start of the, of the service to let you know, yes, this is what we're talking about today. If you've got kids, take them out, uh, make sure they're in our kids or a youth program uh, or, or whatever. Or if it's, you're watching on our live stream and you just know, oh, this topic is going to be talked about so that you're aware of that. And the thirdly, the other thing is to make sure that it happens on an appropriate day. Uh, last week was Thanksgiving. Not the right time to talk about an important topic like this. We just realized that there are better times where people are going to be in a better place to be able to address that. And so I just simply wanted to say that that was a mistake on my part, an oversight on my part, um, and just lacking in wisdom on my part. And so I'm sincerely sorry about that. Um, and so as we move forward and we continue to talk about this topic, that's something we want to take very seriously and to do well. So, all right, that, that's enough about last week. I want to dive into this week as we sum up our series. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about the good life, and I want to talk about suffering. Uh, can we go to the next slide? Because I, I think that a lot of the times we look at the good life, and we look at suffering, and we see these two things as in total uh, like conflict with one another. Uh, back at uh, one of the last lockdowns, I remember I was, I was trying to exercise, and I had an exercise app on my phone of these different workouts that I was going to do. And I remember I had only a limited amount of time to exercise. I had about 30 minutes, maybe a little bit less than that, by the time I got my gym shoes on and went down to our basement. And I have a couple free weights. I was going to lift those. And, and so I used this app, and I was kind of looking through. And, and I, I remember just sitting there and kind of looking through and going, oh, nope, squats, that's too hard. Uh, no, no, I don't want to do those. Nope, that's hard. Nope, that's going to make my life miserable. Nope, nope, nope. I basically spent my entire time that I could be exercising just scrolling through my app trying to find an exercise. And the reason why is because I wanted to avoid the suffering that comes with sometimes doing something difficult like exercise. And I know that some of you can relate. Maybe it's not necessarily an app or exercise, but there's all sorts of other things that in your life you go, I would just rather avoid that. I'm not going to let that happen to me. I don't want that happening. In our culture, I would say that for many of us, we understand the good life as essentially being an experience of life and all of its pleasures and avoiding suffering as much as we possibly can. Uh, the other night, a few nights ago, I was looking for some rap lyrics that I think talked about, spoke about this as a song like I heard a couple years ago, and I was like, oh, who sang that? What are, trying to search the lyrics and trying to get them right. Um, I didn't find the song. I did find these lyrics from country artist George Strait, which the fact that I'm quoting from George Strait is just blowing my mind, if not yours. Um, and this was, these are from his song, I'm Here for a Good Time. He says this, when I'm gone, put it in stone. He left nothing behind. I ain't here for a long time. I'm here for a good time. So he says, I've got a limited amount of time in my life. I'm going to have as much fun as I possibly can. And throughout the song, he sings the praises of moonshine and partying and just kind of all those different things that for him, he looks at as being pleasurable and fun and being what the good life is all about. And while you might not be into those things, I think for many of us, we automatically look at the, op the topic of the good life and we hear about suffering and we go, no, no, I'm, I'm here for a good time. 
I'm here to have fun. I'm here to enjoy myself, to have meaningful experiences, to have relationships that I think are, are, are uh, uh, that satisfy me in all sorts of different ways. I'm interested in pleasure. I'm interested in all the different things that so easily we can say is go, ah, I'm here for a good time and I'm having a good time. Maybe we just say it this way. Go to the next slide to summarize it. The good life is about having the best time possible and avoiding anything that might get in its way. I think for many people, the idea of suffering and the good life, they just do not go together. They just seem counterintuitive to even imagine both of those being somehow connected with one another. Well, throughout this entire series, and of course today, we as a church, we want to challenge those assumptions, those deeply held beliefs about what a good life looks like. Because for me, for us, Our conviction is that the good life is not found through pursuing pleasure and our desires and all those different things, but rather is found as we look to Jesus and as we surrender our lives as his disciples to him and say, Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to become more like you. We want your love to become more and more apparent in our lives and for us to love the things that you love. And so we want to look at Jesus and his view of suffering. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Matthew chapter 16. This is a story that happens, or an interaction that Jesus has with his disciples. And his, his one disciple, Peter, who's kind of like his, one of his closest disciples, he ultimately asks his followers who they say that he is. And that's not just simply a question about, like, do you know my name? It's a question about what is his calling and his mission and what his ministry is really all about. And Peter, one of his closest disciples, speaks up and he says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. He says, you're the one who is going to save and redeem Israel. You are the one who God is working through in this profound way to save all of humanity. And then this is the conversation that follows that. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And so Jesus, they've had this breakthrough moment with his followers. They see him. They say, you're the Messiah. And then he begins to start to try and tell them. He says, I'm on this mission. I have this ministry, and it's leading me to Jerusalem, and it's going to lead me into all sorts of suffering at the hands of the religious elites, the people who think they know everything. They are going to, it's going to cause me incredible suffering. I'm going to face rejection and insult. They're going to embarrass me in front of everybody. And he says, ultimately, they are going to kill me and put me to death. And then he puts in this here. He says, I'm going to be raised back to life. Now, this interesting thing happens. Go to the next slide. Peter says to Jesus, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Now, there's two things that immediately go off in my mind when I read this passage. The first off is going, whoa, Peter, seriously? I mean, this is your rabbi. You're his disciple. And he's saying this thing, and you take him aside, and you say, actually, Jesus, just so you're clear, well, actually, he says, never, that's not going to happen. Don't talk like this. Come on, our, our movement's just getting momentum. Can you, can you kind of up the happy factor and like keep the suffering stuff down to a minimum? His response, I love the way the ESV, or uh, it says here, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus' response, um, actually, the other thing that I think is fascinating is that actually Peter was in a relationship with his teacher, with his rabbi, where he could actually go to him and bring to him his concerns, his questions. 
which I think is just an incredible example of what leadership is supposed to look like. But sorry, that's a tangent. But this is the response. This shall never happen, or this is what he says. Go back. This will never happen to you. This shall never happen to you. He's saying all this talk about all this bad stuff happening. Come on, don't, don't think about this. You're the Messiah. Everything's going to work out great for you. The life that God wants for you is one that avoids all of this terrible, rough, difficult stuff. And here is Jesus' response. He says this. Go to the next slide. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He says, Peter, what you're saying to me is so warped and so out of sync with what my mission is actually about, who I'm called to actually be. He says, you're actually getting in the way. You're missing out on everything that I am called to be. I love the way that the, uh, we have the New International Version here, but the ESV or English Standard Version, it translates, just simply go to the next line, it, it translates it this way. It says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think many of us, whether we're Christians or not, so many of us, we, or even when we are Christians, we set our minds on the things of man rather than the things of God. I mean, this is where you get things called the prosperity gospel, health, and wealth. Essentially, it says, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe hard enough in your heart, if you have enough faith, you're never going to get sick. Your marriage will definitely, for sure, obviously survive, or you're going you're to find that special someone. I mean, this is the, the, the lie that, oh, yeah, no, no, if you are a Christian or you believe the right things, yes, you are going to experience all kinds of success, financial success in just every area of your life. Essentially, it scares me how often in the church we can just send this message of that what Jesus or Peter says to Jesus, this shall never happen to you. All the bad, difficult stuff, this shall never happen to you. I feel like there's pastors who get up there, big, massive churches who go out and proclaim this message. This will never happen to you. Just believe, do all the right stuff. And yet, here we see Jesus saying, you are setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. For Jesus, the life, that he is living, the trajectory that his sacrificial love is carrying him is not towards comfort and security and the approval of people and prestige. It is bringing him to the cross. It's bringing him face to face with the reality of suffering. Now, as a Christian, we want to speak out again, as a pastor, I want to speak out against this idea of health and wealth and this promise, like if you just believe, you don't ever have to worry about suffering. But there's a few other things that I think are important for us to address as a church about what we're talking about when we talk about suffering, or rather, how we should view it. So here are four things that I just think are incredibly important, and I want to say this almost as a preface before everything else that I say this morning. First off, suffering should not be justified. Now, here's what I mean by that. Suffering should not be justified. So often what we'll do is we'll try to explain suffering. Uh, we will try and go, oh, well, that's happening because of this. Or maybe because God is trying to teach you a lesson. Or, or maybe just God needed this thing to happen. And I think that the best way to respond to that is instead just to go, no, we don't know why terrible things happen. We don't know why that child gets sick and dies. 
We don't know why the business fails. We don't know why that person who had just all of the, it seemed like they were a great person and we thought, oh, this was going to be the relationship and then it just didn't work out. We don't know why all those things happen. And instead of being a church that goes, hey, here, we want to just explain it and justify and be like, oh, yes, well, that's just what's got to happen. We just don't do that. We take a step back. Jesus does not justify suffering. He does not justify the sinful actions of those who put him on the cross. Instead, he endures them. Secondly, suffering should not be desired. As Christians, we are not called to go and seek out suffering in the context of our own lives and say, hey, like, this will make God love me more. We're not called to go, hey, well, we should go out and go through and get like a masochist kind of version of just, I enjoy pain. It gives me pleasure. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Now, his way of life, his loving others ultimately brings him into a place that brings challenges and difficult and conflict and ultimately suffering, but it's not something he was seeking out in and of itself. Rather, it was a byproduct of his life of sacrificial love. Next, suffering should not be ignored. Within the church community, within the world, when we see suffering and pain and people going through agonizing, difficult things, we do not want to ignore it. We don't want to pretend it's not happening or act like, oh, that's their problem, not ours. We take suffering very, very seriously. I, I, the, the symbol of the church is the cross. I mean, we've got one out front. And that should, be above everything, say that, no, no, we take suffering very seriously and we refuse to ignore it. In fact, we actually have this monument that reminds us that there is a world full of sin and pain and death and that this has been confronted by the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. And finally, suffering should not be trivialized. And sometimes this can be hard. Maybe it's you've been gone through some difficult, painful things in your life. Maybe you've experienced immense loss, whether that's in the form of a business or, or a family, relational, or, or maybe it's a person that you love deeply or people that you love deeply in your life. And you've gone through this terrible, difficult, painful journey. And then someone else is talking about, oh, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a failed business or something. And you just look at it and you're kind of going, oh, oh, come on, get over it. It's not that big a deal. I would just simply say that is so out of sync with the heart of compassion that we see in Jesus. We don't want to trivialize the suffering of other people. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I officiated a, um, a uh, memorial service for a student. I, I used to be a youth pastor, and there was a student in my youth group who... Um, he had since graduated, and I've since moved on from that. Obviously, I'm a lead pastor now, but uh, he'd committed suicide. And in hearing the reflections from so many of his friends, this young man in his early 20s, his whole life in front of him, starting to take off in his career, so many of his friends were like, oh, we didn't know it was this bad. We had no idea what was going on underneath the surface in his life. And while I don't hold them responsible at all for this young man's decisions at, at all, that's not what I'm saying, we have no idea what's really going on underneath the surface. We have no idea how much it hurts, how much it aches. And so the last thing we want to do is to trivialize it. Jesus continues on. He says this. Go to the next slide. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. 
Jesus is essentially confronting that same idea that George Strait's song talks about. I'm here for a good time. He says, if you're just here for a good time, know that you're actually going to miss out on the better life that I have for you. Because all of these things that you're looking to and looking towards to fulfill your life and to, and to make your life meaningful and significant, he says that all of those things are a waste and ultimately they're going to lead to destruction. Now, sometimes those things lead to destruction in like an emotional sense. You know, this thing that you thought was going to be the ultimate, maybe it was a relationship, uh, maybe it was a possession, an item, maybe it was some sort of level in your career. He says you can make your life all about pursuing those things. But he says, if your life is all about that, ultimately it's going to fall flat. So sometimes that happens in that, but he means it in a very literal sense. He says this, if, you, if you're doing that, you're missing out on walking through life with me. Because that's where the source of life really is. It's in relationship with Jesus. Jesus continues on saying this, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? to have all sorts of followers on their social media, to look, be looked at and approved of by so many other people, to be admired, to be achieving incredible success, to be driving a beautiful car, whatever it might be, and yet forfeit their soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. And so Jesus says, you realize that all the stuff that you're investing, you're pouring yourself, you're, you're heart, giving your heart to, he says, ultimately, this stuff is going to be exposed for what it truly is. It's not going to matter. You're going to see it as a waste. You're going to see it as something that just simply leads to death. He says, I actually have something so much better for you, and you're going to see it. You're going to experience it. He just calls it the reward. I might just say this. The good life is found not in avoiding suffering, but living for something worth suffering for. There's an author, her name is Elizabeth Gilbert. Gilbert, she's written a book called Eat, Pray, Love, which has gotten incredible success. She talks about the process of writing and creativity in her book, Big Magic. And there's this passage that I've always thought really interesting. She talks about a blog that she came across by an author named Mark Manson. And here, I just wanted to quote some things from her in this. She says this, What's your favorite flavor of dirt sandwich? That was the title of this blog post by this guy, Mark Manson. She said, and what Mark Manson means is that every single pursuit, no matter how wonderful and exciting and glamorous it may initially seem, comes with its own brand of dirt sandwich, its own lousy side effects. As Manson writes with profound wisdom, everything stinks some of the time. You just have to decide what sort of stinkage you're willing to deal with. So the question is not so much, what are you passionate about? The question is, is what are you passionate enough about that you can endure the most disagreeable aspects of the work? And goes on to say this. Manson explains it this way. If you want to be a professional artist but you aren't willing to see your work rejected hundreds, if not thousands of times, then you're done before you start. If you want to be a hotshot court lawyer, but can't stand the 80-hour work weeks, then I've got bad news for you. And then Gilbert writes this, because if you love and want something enough, whatever it is, then you don't really mind eating the dirt sandwich that comes with it. She then tells about an experience she had with another writer who was doing a little bit more successful than she was. And this writer was just complaining and con contemplating, maybe I just need to quit 
my job. Maybe I need to find something else. Why am I going through this struggle? And he had a couple different projects that were due and just frustrated and, and venting. And, and, I remember, and Gilbert remembers, recalls this conversation, and she simply says, are you going to eat that dirt sandwich? She's like, I would love to take that on. Because she says, I just have this love and passion for writing. I'm willing to slog through the things that are difficult because I see something so valuable on the other side. There's a word we throw around a lot in our culture. It's just the word passion. It's the word we talk about. We talk to kids or, or young people who are trying to navigate their careers. And so often the thing that we'll tell them is just figure out your passion and follow it. I mean, many people probably in this room, you've been given that advice. You go to the next slide. Figure out your passion and follow it. And that's the advice that is so often given. Find that thing within you that resonates, that you love, and go and do that for the rest of your life, and you'll never work another day. But maybe the question we really need to ask ourselves is, what is the thing in your life that is worth suffering for? Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, can we go back to it? verse we've already looked at, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. And Jesus is saying, hey, this journey of discipleship, of following me, of joining me in this journey towards the cross, it's worth suffering for. Now, Jesus, he continues on because he's not just simply stalling and ending off in this place of suffering. Because for him, he sees, no, no, this is not just suffering for the sake of suffering. This is not suffering to try and earn God's love. Rather, this is suffering because I see something else on the other side of it. I might just say it this way, living for more than we can see. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's this, this section of scripture. It's often kind of called as the, the uh, heroes of faith or the hall of fame. And it goes through and lists all of these amazing people. If you've grown up in the church or been around the church or grew up reading the different Bible stories, you may be familiar with all sorts of different characters that are mentioned in this passage. All sorts of heroes like Moses and Abraham, and we can go on and on with all sorts of names. And these are people who go on to do amazing things and are held up in high esteem by, uh, by the people of Israel and by, by Christians. There's this interesting thing that I noticed when I was reading through this one time. So let me just read it through to you now. It says this, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lion, goes on, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became a powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Okay, just stop there. So you read that, go back, go back. So you go through and you read through that and you're going, yeah, yeah, oh, awesome. It's so good. You just feel pumped up. It's so good to, to have faith in Jesus, to surrender my life to him. Yes, yes, yes. And then I, I love this. I actually tried to do this once. I was doing a, actually, well, let me go, let me go where it goes next. Go, go to the next slide. So it's all this, yes, yes, just building, building, building. And then it goes here. There were others who were tortured 
refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some face jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Go to the next slide. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. Just, oh, seriously? They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They, were, they wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. And so we got this list of like Hall of Famers, these amazing people. And then there's this other list of all these things, the pain, the difficulty, all of the stuff that they went through. And then it goes on to say this, therefore, since, oh, what shall we say? I, I, oh, yeah, sorry, we can go keep going. We're back at the start. Go to, uh, therefore, since we are surrounded. There we go. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The reality is, is as much as you try, suffering will find you. You can be as safe as possible. You can do everything, or at least seemingly do everything right. And suffering will find you. Sometimes it's the result of sin or mistakes. Sometimes it is the result of just simply living in a broken world where death and disease are a reality that we all face. And the challenge that Jesus gives to us and his followers that we read about in Hebrews, the challenge that's given to us is to say, do not let suffering be the compass or the avoidance of suffering be the compass of your life. Rather, follow Jesus. And here's the amazing thing. Look at this. Go to the next slide. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, we often think about Jesus and the cross, we think about love, we think about sacrifice. We think about compassion, we think about forgiveness, and all those things are so incredibly true. When we think about the cross, rarely do we think about joy. I mean, how often is that the image that comes to mind? And I think for a lot of us, that's because joy and happiness, we just see those two things as going hand in hand. And ultimately, happiness is, is about pleasure. It's about feeling good. Joy is about more than feeling good. Joy is about living for something that's worth suffering for. And when we give our lives over to the way of Jesus and begin to live for something bigger and larger than ourselves, as we make the love that he has the kind of love that we want to have and embody in our lives, it changes us and transforms us and we become more and more intimate in our friendship, in our relationship with Jesus. The good life is found not in avoiding suffering, but in living for something worth suffering for. And I'd simply say this, the good life is found. Go to the next slide. The good life is found as we commit ourselves to learning 
Go back to the one you were at before, so go to the next one. We discover the good life as we commit ourselves to learning to love the things Jesus loves and love the way Jesus loves. So in the midst of the suffering, maybe it's physical suffering, maybe it's an emotional suffering that you're going through, maybe it's a relationship that's falling apart, maybe it's just your life doesn't look the way that you thought it would. Maybe it's pain, maybe it's disease, maybe it's grief and mourning and loss. The invitation for us is what does faithfulness to the way of Jesus, what does learning to love the things that Jesus loves and love the way that Jesus loves look like in the midst of the challenges and the pain that you are walking through. I had a good friend of mine, uh, kind of a hero of mine. He's a few, number of years older than me, kind of a mentor, a hero. And I remember him sharing a story or an experience he had. Uh, he got married in his early 20s. He had just finished Bible college, and his wife was just about to start teacher's college. And so they're dirt poor, had no money, um, and so he was able to get a job working construction. A friend pulled some strings, got him in on, on a construction crew. And so his wife was just starting teacher's college, and so she was just consumed with all the work that that entailed and the commuting to her, her, her school and all those different things, and he would go into work every day. And one of the first things that his friend who hooked up with the job said, hey, do you have construction boots? And my friend said, no, sorry, I, I don't. And I don't have any money right now. And he said, don't worry, I've got it covered. Here, I've got an old pair of my boots you can wear. And my friend, he realized pretty early on that when you are just starting on the job site, basically your job, I think they refer to it as being the gopher, which means you go for everything. And so his job essentially meant going around and moving one thing to another place. Or if someone needed a tool, he had to go and get it out of the truck and bring it in or, and that sort of thing. It meant lots and lots and lots of walking. And as he was traveling around, he basically realized these boots did not fit well. And after one day of just being on his feet all day, he just blisters and aching foot pain. And he went back the next day, because he didn't, couldn't take a day off, he's just started. Same pain over and over and over again, like building on building on building. And I remember him sharing this experience and what got him through he said the reason why he able to kept, kept on doing it, kept on going in the midst of this time and then working his first two weeks on this job site um, because then he got his paycheck and he was actually able to buy a pair of boots that fit. But the thing that kept him going, he said, no, I just, I began to think about my family, thought about my wife and what this was making possible and the life that we were building together. He said, I was, I was willing to endure anything for that. It didn't make the pain go away. It didn't reduce the blisters. But it gave him a strength, a focus, and a clarity to live for something greater than just his own comfort. The life that Jesus invites us into is the good life. There is no better life. You will not find the good life in possessions, in money, 
in pursuing all of your desires. You will not find the good life in prestige and in the approval of other people. You will not experience the good life in simply seeing all of your dreams come true. You will find the good life as you surrender your life in faith to the way of Jesus Jesus, and allow him to change you and work through you and walk with you. Well, every week we end off of this series, we've ended off with a different practice for you to take back, a spiritual practice for you to use in your own life. And this morning, the practice that I want to invite you into is the practice of confession. And the reason why I think confession is so important is that this is such a communal thing. For so many of us, when we suffer, we live with this this lie or this this untruth about ourselves that we should be totally self-sufficient. And we don't want to be open about the pain or the difficult things that we are going through. In confession, we share our sins, our wrongdoing, the ways in which we have missed the mark, the way in which we have fallen short of living out the love that Jesus calls us to, and we've resorted to selfishness or pride or greed or whatever else it might be. In James chapter 5, verse 16, James writes this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, I do not share this saying, if you're going through a season of suffering, you need to confess your sins because God is punishing you, and by confessing your sins, suddenly God is going to heal you and everything is going to get better. That simply isn't true. But what I invite you into is so often we just think about confession as being this between me and God thing. And the practice of confession is actually finding another person or maybe a group of people. Maybe it's a person in your CubCom or someone in your covenant community or someone you're close to who you can open up to and say, you know, I've I've fallen short in these ways. And one of the things that's been so profound to me in those moments where I've actually confessed to another person, like out loud, actually voiced it and said it, is that sometimes there'll be this experience of for God's forgiveness in my head, like I come to God and I ask for forgiveness for the mistakes I've made, the sin I've committed. But there's something profound about when I actually speak it out. There's something profound about looking into the eyes of another person or maybe just knowing that person on the other side of the phone as I share what it is I need to confess to and the experience of grace and forgiveness that happens when that person says, know that you are forgiven that Jesus has forgiven you. And so that's an invitation for you. I'm being at practice. It's just finding a person, one other person you're going to agree to call. Maybe it's once a month. Maybe it's every week. Maybe it's, maybe it's every day. And it's a quick conversation. Hey, I'm struggling with this sin today. I need to confess it to you. I need to admit I fell short in this way as a, as a, as a husband, as a wife, as a dad, as, as a whatever, as a boss, as an employee, as a student. And to simply say, I need to confess this to you. Well, as we transition to communion, I want to read to you Psalm 139. In many ways, this is an invitation to confess your sins to God before we take part in this meal together. Psalm 139 says this, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So let us take some time to be quiet and let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And would you hear these words of assurance, of grace, that God speaks over us? Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The body and the blood of Christ given and poured out for you. Let's eat and drink together. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and forever will be. Amen.